Jacob Alpern, the team of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. That is his weekly Monday appearance, the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron, as he does every week. On this edition of Fangraphs Audio, Dave Cameron analyzes all baseball. For example, Frank Wren was fired by the Atlanta Baseball Club. Why? What did he do wrong? What could he have done better? Dave Cameron answers ridiculous questions like these and also some helpful ones. With regard to the AL MVP award, what would Dave Cameron's ballot look like were he asked by someone to vote on that? He actually has a real ballot for the NL MVP, but what about the AL MVP? Which is to say, who finishes numbers 2 through 10 after Mike Trout? That's the real question. Finally, for those who are willing to endure the bulk of this conversation, you will be treated to this moment in which Dave Cameron reveals his true colors as a manager. Uh, this year I will do a better job of double-checking your work and not assuming that you are competent. Fangraphs Audio features managing editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. I somehow accidentally did it, or if Skype did it on its own, but you're uh, within my Skype application. uh, Your contact information has somehow been placed in the favorites category. Yeah, well, that's probably just because no one likes you. (laughs) All right, (laughs) fair enough. Yeah. Good good note to start on. All right, I think that's the the only fair place to start. (laughs) Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, How you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Probably better than you at the moment. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You might. You might be. You might be. We'll see. We'll see. Um, I wanted to talk to you about uh, baseball today. If that's all right. Uh, sure. We'll see, analyze at least, uh, if not all of it, then at least a good portion of it. Uh, I want to start uh, because this is the sort of situation in which um, you proved to be very useful during the podcast. When I don't, and maybe uh, I, I represent uh, at least some of our listeners in this regard. When I don't necessarily under, remember the entire uh, history of a particular situation, uh, but you seem to have uh, something closer to a photographic memory where it's concerned. And in this particular case, I want to ask about the firing, Atlanta's firing of Frank Wren, which just happened today. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah, no, I, uh, yes, let's you talk posted, about Frank You posted on that, Dave yeah, Cameron. Yeah. No, I know. I was playing on your joke about me knowing. Oh, how that you would know about it, yeah. Yeah, right, yeah right. Oh, yeah, all right. Oh, man. Yeah. So Apparently funny. I don't know humor. Yes, yeah. funny. The um so could you what all right, so with regard to the to Atlanta, here's what I feel like I know about them is that they um they have had they have a number of talented players. Uh, yes. of course we talked this past uh off season or cer- certainly coming into the regular season they extended a lot of players. Mm-hmm. Uh talented young players to contracts that uh well, I, of course both sides agreed on them, but uh, relative to the amount of value that those players ought to provide, it probably uh, of some benefit to the club, um, which seem like smart moves. Uh, I also feel like the Atlanta, Atlanta has not really made it to the playoffs in a little bit, and if they have, they've been eliminated early on. Right. They they have had good regular season success for quite a while, and uh, not a lot of postseason success for quite a while. Right. Uh, so what's so what's the thing that got 
that got Frank Wren fired? Is it, I guess, is it cumulative? Does, is it have something, is this season somehow representative of some others he's had, the, the, that Atlanta's had in recent years, and that's why he's, uh, and that's why he's out? Uh, well, I think, you know, the main thing that has gotten him fired is the fact that they're gonna finish about the same as the, the, the around the same record as the Mets, uh, with their second, second, really poor second half, uh, finish in a couple of years. So this is not necessarily a new thing. They did this a couple of years ago as well. Uh, and I think, you know, overall, the main, you, you could boil it down to essentially two moves. BJ Upton's $75 million contract and the $60 million extension they gave to Dan Ugla after they traded for him. Uh, those two moves have failed spectacularly. Uh, whether those were, you know, knowable in foresight or not is up for debate, but certainly in retrospect, those were moves the Braves wish they would not have made. Kind of a mid-market team spending, you know, 100-ish million dollars on their payroll. When you take, you know, 25 or 30 million of that and you light it on fire, you make it difficult for your team to win. And so I think, when you kind of look at the Braves, you can, you can, you know, give them credit for developing guys like Freddie Freeman and Jason Hayward and Anderson Simmons. But, you know, a GM is not always, uh, solely or, you know, even generally responsible for the player development of young players. You've got a lot of guys under him who are, you know, scouts and scouting directors and, uh, cross checkers and, um, you know, player development guys who are, you know, kind of building a, a talented base. And the GM's job, you know, this is a little bit of a, uh, Simplification. Simplification is a good word, yeah. yeah. Uh, is to acquire good veteran players to put around the guys that his staff develops for him. Uh, it's not entirely the case, but you know, I think you can say that a GM is, uh, probably more responsible for veteran acquisitions than, uh, for young talent development. And the Braves, uh, don't really have any good veterans. I think if you look at their, uh, position player side of things, I think they have five players who've been, position players who've been worth more than half a win this year. Uh, that's not good when you when you field eight and you need a bench. Yeah, and then but they have some. Well, I mean, Jason Hayward, uh, his WAR figure this year is pretty high. Uh, some of that is defensive, so of course we say uh, we say uh, be careful a little bit with it. But um, he's good. No, right. Hayward, Freeman, Upton, Evan Gaddis, uh, all you know significant contributors this year. Mm-hmm. Andrelton Simmons still a really good defender. So even though he didn't hit. I think he's still a, you know, a valuable major league player. And then the rest of the roster, at least on the position player side, was trash. Yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't, I was just looking at their record right now. That is a bad record to have. Uh, especially since, uh, they, yeah, sometime, what, I don't know, June? Weren't they, weren't they a reasonably, uh, well situated club? Yeah, they haven't hit well at all in the second half. I think, like, uh, Justin Upton's really cooled off. Uh, I think, you know, the, the guys who were helping them, kind of carry them in the first half have cooled off and they just don't have enough good role players in order to uh, make up for deficits when when their you know three or four best hitters aren't uh mashing the crap out of the ball. I mean when you when you're like six best position players, Chris Johnson or Jordan Schaefer, you you've got an issue. Right, and I think Jordan Schaefer plays for a different team now. Right, yeah. Uh, you know, I think like if we were to kind of name off like if you said, you know, positions 6 through whatever the rest of the bench 13 or something, uh, you'd have basically a cast of near replacement level players. Johnson's a little better than that, but I mean, you, you know, Upton has basically performed at replacement level since the Braves got him. Uh, Emilio Bonifacio, Tommy Lastella, Taylor Pasternicki, Ryan Dumit. These are these are not good major league players. Wow, Ryan Dumit, huh? Yeah, he's pretty bad. Yeah, it's been a while since I've heard that name. Yeah. The okay. So what will so Atlanta is what conducting? They have a John Hart, whose name is. Uh, 
appeared other places. I think he was the Texas Rangers GM at one point. He worked for Cleveland maybe another point. He, he ran the Cleveland Indians back when they were uh, kind of developing the extend young player model in the early 90s. and uh, He kind of uh, created the um, Albert Bell, Carlos Baerga, that whole group. Uh, yeah, and had a lot of success. But he's not he, – he's just an interim uh, solution. And so they will be – now will they be looking to – as we've seen, for example, with the case of the Houston Astros, which is a different situation, but we saw a total overhaul of the, the Astros in terms of their front office. Uh, what do we expect? Do we expect uh, the, the uh, do we expect Atlanta to look for a decidedly different uh, general type of general manager, or was it just the idea that uh, uh, the Frank Wren himself wasn't working out, but they don't necessarily need to make any uh, large structural changes as far as that's concerned? Yeah, Ren's the fall guy here. I mean, we can debate whether Frank Ren was a good GM or a bad GM. I think there's evidence on both sides, probably, and I don't know that it's a, you know, a travesty that he got fired, but this is very clearly just a, uh, we need someone to take the fall for this bad season, and you're the guy at the top of the chart. I mean, you look at the three guys who they named who are going to conduct the general manager search. It's John Hart, uh, who's, you know, most, did most of his work in the 90s, and, uh, you know, certainly, a well-respected baseball man, but not a not a young, forward-thinking, analytical Harvard type. Although he, you know, has trained kind of the Indians' uh, front office and kind of pushed them in an analytical direct direction. So it's not like he's an old-school Luddite. But you know, John Sherrold and Bobby Cox are definitely establishment-type uh, guys. They're not going anywhere. They're helping to pick the next guy. So I think the combination of these three uh, being the search party for the next GM. Should tell you that they're they're going to continue the status quo, and I think the the um, overwhelming expectation is that they're going to promote assistant general manager John Copalella uh, to the general manager job, and then either Hart or Sherholtz or maybe both uh, will kind of take senior director, uh, you know, executive vice president type roles to oversee the entire baseball operations staff. So this will probably become kind of like the new front office in baseball where there's a GM who then reports to someone higher than him who used to be a GM, and they in tandem kind of run the baseball operations department rather than the GM being the guy who gets the final say. Now, wait, did that start with... Did that start with the Cubs when uh, Epstein was hired? Isn't Epstein like the the VP there? He's the team president, yeah. So I don't think they started it necessarily, but it's definitely become a trend over the last few years where um, teams with good young assistant GMs don't want to lose these guys. They don't want to see them become general managers elsewhere. There's a a desire for continuity. Uh, People want to keep working with each other, but they also want to be able to promote, uh, you know, their best assistants. And so rather than lose them to general manager jobs elsewhere, the GM himself just gets a promotion into a team president role, or sometimes it's called something else. Uh, and then he promotes his assistant, uh, which, you know, we've seen with Theo Epstein and Jed Hoyer, but it's not the only um, uh, scenario where that's, that's happened. It's also happened over with the White Sox in Chicago where Kenny Williams went upstairs so they could keep Rick Hahn, and they gave Rick Hahn the GM job. Uh, and I think, you know, even now we're seeing that with like Tony Larusa in Arizona was hired to oversee the baseball operations staff, but he's going to hire a GM to kind of run the day to day. And so this is kind of where the modern front office is heading is kind of a, a GM underneath a person who's actually the, the whole, the real boss. And in like, it's likely in Atlanta, that's either going to be John Hart or John Schultz. Okay. All right. Uh, how often does, uh, how often are general managers generally getting fired? And how often are they getting fired relative to how often managers are getting fired? 
So GMs have not gotten fired until this year for quite a while. I think we'd gone two or three years uh, without a firing of a GM. Uh, and then this year we saw Josh Burns, Kevin Towers, and now Frank Wren uh, all get fired. So this is, we're, we're down three just this, this year after several years of, of no one getting fired. Uh, Ruben Amaro, I think, still potentially could be fired this winter. Seems unlikely, but, you know, a good case could be made that he should be. Uh, so I think there's, you know, uh, we're in a, a year of changeover uh, after several years of calm. Uh, I think in general we see one every year or sometimes two a year. Um, but usually it's about one a year, and, and managers certainly turn over more than GMs because usually when you're replacing a manager, it's not as uh, much of an organizational overhaul as it was, well, this just wasn't a good fit. Uh, kind of like what we saw in Houston with Jeff Lunau and Bo Porter not getting along very well and not being on the same page. Now Jeff Lunau is going to go try and hire a manager who he can can work with a little bit better. Doesn't necessarily shift, a, you know, the Astros are changing directions entirely. And usually when you fire a GM like in Arizona or San Diego, you're, you're signaling that you're going to do something dramatically different than what you've done in the past. The Braves is probably a little different than that. Um, where they're not going to change directions dramatically, uh, they're going to kind of stay the course just with a new leader. What the? Um, how does the firing of uh, leadership, whether it's general manager or managers, how does that compare to, from your experience, other other American sports? And if if you were to come to to sort of produce a number of how often these guys should be fired. How often it makes sense to fire them and rehire someone new? What, what would you say? Well, compared to other sports, I don't really know because I have not followed uh, basketball and football and hockey as as closely as I did. Yeah, in, that's not in, a fair in earlier me. years, right? Yeah. Like you know, I I I have a feeling that they're all about the same, but I don't know. I don't know. So I'm going to plead ignorance on that one. In terms of how often they should be fired, I guess it's a theoretical question, right? So like. Uh, you say you're the Phillies, and Ruben Amaro is your GM. He's probably the best example of a guy who I think, you know, public consensus would be that he should be replaced. Uh, if you're the Phillies, maybe you are not convinced that he is one of the 30 most qualified people in baseball to be running a franchise right now. Oh, yeah. And I think, you know, I'm not convinced of that. Uh, and I think there are good young assistant GMs who uh, could probably do a better job leading the Phillies going forward in the future. It, on a strict basis, you'd say, okay, well, if you're, there's 30 jobs and you're not one of the 30 best people to be doing this job, you should be fired and one of those 30 people should be given this job. But there are tr- like frictional costs in, in associated with firing your GM and trying to hire someone new in that the, maybe one of the 30 people who are, you know, of the 30 people who might be better at the job, they might not all want to work for you. They might not all want to work in Philadelphia. I think one of the things we've seen over the last few years is uh, as this kind of new system of dual GMing or, you know, GM and team president model has come about, a lot of the kind of hot GM candidates have turned down chances to interview other places. Uh, I think, you know, we've seen like Thad Levine in Texas and David Forrest in Oakland. They've been rumored as potential GMs on basically every opening for the last five to ten years, and they're still where they are, and they haven't left. And this Rick Hahn was similar in Chicago before he got promoted. Uh, it's a, kind of a common thing now to where these guys who are kind of tapped as like the next hot young GM uh, don't leave. And they kind of uh, value continuity and they value working with their friends. A lot of times, um, you know, they're younger guys. So these this is basically their work experience history is with this core group of people. They enjoy their scenario. It's not necessarily appealing to them to go start over and, and try to work with people they don't know and try to build a team from scratch. Uh, and in some of these situations, I think, 
you know, Arizona's a good example. I've talked to people in the game who are not interested in working for the Diamondbacks under Tony Larusa. He might be a very good uh, director of baseball operations or whatever title they gave him. Uh, and Dave Stewart might turn out to be a very good GM if he's named GM as expected. Uh, but there's, uh, you know, some people within the game who think that that's not going to be a particularly fun place to work. Uh, and so I think, you know, if you're the Phillies and you say, maybe I'd like to replace Ruben Amaro, you have to assess the the viability that some of these, you know, guys you think would do a better job would actually come work for you. And in some cases, it's uh, not as easy to hire them as you might think. Yeah. I, I well, because you know that I sometimes pay attention to uh, the soccer from Europe there. Yeah. And... It is a strange culture they have of um, certainly like the uh, the managers, uh, the equivalent of the managers. They will just fire them all the time. And, you know, even more so than in uh, American sports, than in baseball, for example, um, the payroll of a club, you know, the, their spending power is, uh, you know, has a lot to do with where they end up at the um, in the standings at the end of the year. Right. Uh, and but, so what, what is always uh, amazing to me is when a club that clearly does not have the spending power, so you say in England, right, if there's a team like Stoke, there's a team in Stoke, and they just don't have as much money as, uh, you know, Manchester United or Chelsea or something like that. And yet they'll still fire their manager. <laughs> and uh, I think, I mean, I guess I understand uh, to some degree because you're always saying, well, that uh, didn't work out. We need someone who has uh, excellent, you know, Whose tactics are getting the best out of the players, but there also there, there seems to be um, some diminishing returns. If uh, I mean, you can actually be shooting yourself in the foot if uh, if if you have so much turnover that even, uh, especially in a sport where tactics are important, uh, you have players not even be be able to become accustomed to that. It seems like there would be some virtue to continuity. Yeah, so I'm going to answer your question, and then I'm going to ask you one before you ask another one. Yeah. So I agree with you that continuity, I think, has become more uh, of a thing to be valued in Major League front offices. And that's one of the reasons why kind of this two-headed front office is growing, is people like working with people they, they have trust with, they respect, they kind of know where they stand in a front office, and they know that their opinion is valued. And sometimes I think the, the grass is greener uh, mindset has, has shown to not be true where, you know, maybe Paul Podesta would be a good example of, you know, a very good uh, assistant GM in Oakland was named, you know, one of these hot young GM candidates, took the job in, in Los Angeles, didn't particularly get along well with the media, didn't seem to uh, win over parts of the front office that existed previously. And so they, even though his team won, he still got fired and he's now back up, back in the assistant GM working for the Mets now, uh, kind of back where he started and maybe finding that this is Maybe a role he likes better. I mean, maybe maybe Paul DePodesta wants to be a GM again. I don't know. I haven't asked him. Uh, but it seems like he might be an example of a guy who uh, regrets. Nah, maybe not regrets, but you know, is uh, is happier in an assistant GM role than he was trying to run the Dodgers. And so I think uh, people have maybe learned from that experience and said, you know, I've got a good thing going right now. I'm going to not risk it by going into a situation that might be ex- explosive and and might cost me my job in the future. Um, so I will, uh, now to my question, yeah. since you brought up your European soccer. So Sunday uh, or Saturday, one of these weekend days, I was attempting to take a little bit of a nap. And, you know, we don't have cable. So we get one local channel based on our antenna. It happens to be NBC. Yeah. And uh, so there was a half of a soccer game that I watched between Liverpool and West Ham. Yeah. And uh, they were talking about how brilliant Liverpool's manager was. I think Liverpool is owned by the Boston Red Sox owner, correct? It is, yeah. 
Uh, so I'm assuming they're probably analytical soccer people. Uh, but Liverpool also apparently is terrible this year. This is their third loss in four games. And they have this big payroll. So they're off to this terrible start. Is their manager actually a genius, like the announcers were telling me? Or is this one of these, like, no one actually knows and they're just giving this guy credit because he's good-looking and young? Um, well, he is good-looking. I can confirm that. Uh, yeah, so I think, like, the thing with... Uh, it's Brendan Rodgers you're talking about. Yes, right. Um, he He's had success... Um, with other clubs, and I, and I, and Liverpool had a pretty fantastic season last year. But yeah, I guess it's always the question, um, in, a, in every sport, there must be some, um, there's some combination between the influence that the players have on the, the, the success of the team and the influence that the, that the coach does, or the coach right. staff. Yeah. And, I mean, I think in baseball, certainly of the American sports, right, don't we think that the coach Likely, at least in terms of the on-field strategy, probably has the least influence. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of the question is how much does the manager or even the general manager, how much do they actually matter? And I don't think we know the answer in baseball, and I'm guessing we don't know the answer in soccer. Right. But, but like, so like, but in American, in American football, it seems like coaching is, is rather important, doesn't it? Probably. I mean, you know, again, speaking from ignorance, it would seem that, you know, a, a good coaching staff, including the coordinators, can have a, more outsized effect because of the dramatic changes and differences in strategy and play calling, and you can maybe have more of an impact on what your team does based on, you know, the play you call versus just sending, you know, a guy up there to hit and be like, swing good. Yeah. Well, I do know that the difference between, uh, one big difference between Liverpool this year and last year was uh, um, they lost a player named Luis Suarez. Right, the biter. Yeah, the biter, yeah, right. He really had a problem with that, but... um, he was good. I think he, he was good in uh, at almost everything else. Um, I don't. I don't follow the Premier League necessarily uh, very closely week to week. Uh, but my sense is that Suarez uh, was probably uh, conspicuously one of the best players um, in the world. Um, and now he's playing for no teams really. I, I think he'll play, he will play for Barcelona when he returns. But he was handed uh, some sort of months-long ban on account of the biting, the aforementioned biting. Yeah, I like, I think my favorite part of the World Cup was when it was revealed that some guy had bet money on Suarez biting someone in the World Cup, so therefore he won a whole bunch of money <laughs> for his prop bet. I think yeah. that's like my favorite gambling story in a while. That would be, uh, well of course betting is not really legal here in the States, but there are some prop bets that would be fun, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean I feel, I feel like, you know, maybe it's in really like poor taste or something, but this would be like the equivalent of American, uh, football fans betting on, like, Ray Rice beating up his wife again. Like, this is a thing that you would not expect to be able to gamble on. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess so. But if uh, but if someone uh, at, you know, whatever, Ladbrokes or whatever, uh, is willing to put, an, put some odds on it, and another person is willing to put money on one side or the other of those odds, then I guess you have a bet, don't you? Yeah, right. I guess this is one of those things where it's like when there's money to be made, ethics go out the window for a lot of people. Yeah. Do you have any prop bets that you would make about baseball if you could? Um, you know, that might make for a good, good podcast if we've like had time to think about it. Yeah, if you're putting me on the spot, I would be like... What about, uh, well, let's use this as a segue to uh, a po- another post you wrote for today regarding the uh, your hypothetical AL MVP ballot. Yeah. Uh, regarding uh, Victor Martinez appearing uh, or finishing second in AL MVP voting. Right, I would vote heavily on that. Yeah. 
I, I bet heavily on that. I think that the, there's a, almost no chance he finishes outside the top three. And when people are de- when voters are deciding between Martinez and Abreu for the number two spot, they're going to go with the guy whose team made the playoffs. Right. Uh, so you, what do you, what do you, you, uh, you have Michael Brantley say, or you have Mike Trout first? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, we can skip over the number one spot and just say anyone who doesn't vote for Mike Trout this year is just trying to draw attention to themselves. Right. There's no, there's no case for anyone else. Yeah, uh, Michael Brantley had a great season, and he didn't he, even have to hit more than 20 home runs to do it. I think Michael Brantley is kind of a, a great example of kind of the way baseball has transformed into, you know, he's a, he's a corner outfielder who's not a great defender who had a 2020 season. Ten years ago, this was like, you know, a league average player, basically, mm-hmm. uh, based on the traditional numbers. Uh, you know, if you looked at it, be like, oh, he hit 300, and he had some home runs, and he had some steals, and he had some doubles, uh, but he's not a great defender, and, you know, uh, not a huge power guy. This is not a great player. But if you adjust for context, and you kind of welcome yourself into the 2014 normalized stat line, Michael Brantley has been fantastic. You know, he, he and uh, Jose Altuve are actually... Um, uh, Bradley, uh, sorry, Brantley, not not, Brad, not Bradley. Uh, Brantley hit, uh, hit for more power this year, but they both, uh, but neither of them strike out ever really. Yeah, um, no, right. They're they're basically the same type of contact hitter, but Brantley hits for power. Yeah, a little more power. Yeah, 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 yeah. a lot more, a lot more power. Yeah, a lot more power. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so Brantley, second. I mean, I'm not. Honestly, I'm not going to. Uh, I have no strong opinions about any of these. I assume – I don't know. I haven't looked at the comment section on your post. I assume that someone or other says, oh, Michael Brantley or yeah, – I don't, I don't know. I don't, do you think people are upset about that? It's, I mean, look at his – he's a good base runner. He's done a lot of things well. All right, what's the problem? Yeah, right. I mean, I think, you know, unlikely that people who read Fangraphs are going to be really upset with – Talking about Michael Brantley being a very good player, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think the, the the most indignant response I've seen so far is someone who thinks that Jose Altuve should have been in the top ten. And you know, maybe this is uh, an interesting thing to discuss. Is you know, as I wrote about with Hunter Pence last week in the NL MVP discussion, I think personally that contextual uh, situational hitting should be taken into account when you're deciding an MVP. I think you know, if you're constantly distributing your hits towards bases loaded situations or runners in scoring positions. You've been more valuable in the past, even though it's not necessarily a skill, than a guy who gets a whole bunch of hits with no one on base and, you know, hits pop flies or strikes out with guys on base. Uh, and I think if you look at kind of the RE24 contextual matters, uh, you know, guys like uh, uh, Altuve have done really poorly. And I think, you know, this is not something that I can prove with data right now, but seems logical, and maybe we will try to prove this this week, is that... Uh, Infield hits don't do so good at advancing runners, and they don't do so good at scoring runners. Jose Altuve gets a lot of infield hits, and so perhaps he's overrated by uh, a metric that says all singles are worth .33 runs or whatever a single's worth. Oh yeah. Uh, when his when his singles are unlikely to score a guy from second base. That's an interesting thought. Yeah, that's a pleasant one to think about. You, you think you'll probably uh, approach that later in the week? I, I think it's uh, worth worth noting now that I've said here's a reason why I think I mean. So the reason Altuve, or one of the reasons he didn't appear on my top 10 is because his RE24 is 12 runs lower uh, than his combined batting runs and stolen base runs, which is like the offense, the linear weights equivalent of RE24, essentially. Uh, and so, you know, since he didn't perform well in in situations uh, with guys on base, uh, I, I debited him for that. Uh, and I do think, uh, at least in theory, it would make sense that guys who bunt a lot or get a lot of infield hits would perform worse 
and guys who drive the ball to the outfield and could get, you know, sacrifice flies and, and that sort of thing could be more productive uh, in those situations. Well, you wrote about this with regard to Victor Martinez, and I, th- I think you've addressed it uh, recently as well. Uh, oh, because there was this post on uh, scoring, uh, scoring. Uh, yeah, on Instagram. On, on this is something. I, this is a topic about which you've been thinking recently. I think. Yeah, I mean, I think this is brought about a little bit by the kind of uh, Victor Martinez for MVP. Uh, trend that popped up about a month ago where people were uh wanting to you know anoint him as the uh i don't want to vote for mike trout so i need a slugger from detroit uh (laughs) guy and uh you know martinez doesn't have a case i mean there's there's literally no credible case you can make for victor martinez being more valuable than mike trout this year you just can't do it uh but you know to kind of show that if you're trying to, you know, not just bludgeon someone with wins above replacement, they don't buy into the concept, which is fine. No one has to buy into it. It kind of explaining why Martinez is less valuable than they think. Looking at his base running, I think, is a, an important thing because, you know, we when we talk about a guy's batting average on base percentage or slugging percentage, we're essentially talking about it as a shorthand for how many runs they produce. That's what we really care about. That's, I mean, all the currency of baseball is his runs. And how many, you know, runs you can create for your, for your team. That's, that's your job as a hitter. Right. Uh, Martinez does a really good job at getting himself on base and a really terrible job of getting himself in. Why we only care about the one and not the other is kind of a mystery. And this is not just a recent thing. I mean, RBIs have been part of the Triple Crown stats forever and no one cares about runs scored. For whatever reason, we care a lot about the action of driving someone else in. We care very little about the action of getting yourself home once you're already on base. When both are valuable and both contribute to run scoring, I think we should just care about total runs created and not how you do it. Right. Yeah, number three on your ballot is a tie, and it's a it's an act of cowardice. <laughs> <laughs> not really, but it's uh, it is a tie for you between uh, Felix Hernandez and Corey Kluber. Uh, yeah, I think these two pitchers have been the two best in the American League, and I think the Cy Young voting is going to be interesting. Uh, in that I think Felix is going to win, but there's a good case to be made for Corey Kluber, especially if he continues to pitch ex- excellently well in the second half. And Felix has faded a little bit. Uh, and so I think, you know, for voters who really dig into this and say, you know, between these two, which one's had a better season, once I try to account for context and, you know, give Kluber some credit for the fact that he's pitched in front of the worst defensive team in the American League this year, uh, I think that these two pitchers have, have both been great and, splitting the hairs between them is difficult. And, you know, with one start left for each, depending on how that final start goes, uh, I think we could determine the winner in the next few days. So part of the reason why I was not ready to make a strong case for either one is I don't know what the outcome of their final start is going to be, which can matter a lot more than, you know, a few games for a position player. I think even among uh, even among smart uh, fans of baseball, smart writers, there is a there, – there, it takes some – Time and I guess I'm curious as to how long that time is uh, for a player to essentially um, move up a tier. Whether it's from you know it could be you could be a, a rookie, a guy who's making his debut, and then you begin thinking of him as a real major leaguer, uh, uh, and then or it could be a guy who's moving from average to above average, or or in the case of Corey Kluber, probably from average slash above average last year to elite, right? I mean, he's had an elite season as a pitcher. Yeah, no, right. Kluber has turned into an ace. Yeah, but there are, but obviously if you say, well, here on the one hand is Felix Hernandez and here on the other is Corey Kluber, 
who do you think, you know, if you ask a, a large population, again, of even smart people, there is the, um, Felix Hernandez has more cachet so far as that's concerned. And a lot of that has to do with his resume. It's much more impressive. Yeah, but, and, you know, even if you ask me, Felix Hernandez is the better pitcher. Yeah. I will take Felix Hernandez over Corey Kluber. But that's not the question the award is necessarily asking. Right, that's not the question the award is asking. I also think that uh, that talent, that true talent moves or, or can can change pretty rapidly, right? On the pitching side especially, yeah. Yeah, right. So, I mean, Corey Kluber is also a pitcher who's had 14 strikeouts and back-to-back starts. And I, this is not necessarily to compare him to Felix Hernandez, but it's to compare him to other pitchers who might be getting consideration um, or, you know, or uh, – or at least the same amount of consideration as Kluber, despite the fact that they've that they've had markedly uh, inferior seasons. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the things that is maybe difficult for us to come around to is how quickly uh, our evaluations of a minor league pitcher can be proven wrong. And I think maybe Jacob Degrom is in this conversation as well, yeah, right? Where he, he was he was a, a middling prospect, not like a nothing prospect, but he was you know an okay guy. Uh, who was called up because the Mets needed an arm because they had some injuries, not because he was Noah Syndergaard or one of these like top prospects that they were counting on. And now he's just striking everybody out all year long. And we're like, yeah, Jacob DeGrom might be better than we thought. And, you know, I think there are pitchers like this, and we've had this discussion before, who very quickly show that the scouting report, based on their stuff and their minor league performance, uh, missed something. And, you know, whatever for whatever reason, whether it's, you know, James Shields or one of these guys who had a really good changeup that just got undervalued or, you know, just better command than we expected, or he just developed late and he learned a new pitch and he picked up a cutter and he did a Cliff Lee. I mean, for whatever reason, there's guys who just basically discard their scouting report pretty early on in their career and we're like, ah, we missed that one. Whoops. Yeah, it, but the weird thing about DeGrom, because you, you see the other, the flip side of this with some frequency, right? And I think Tommy Malone embodies it uh, as well as anybody who's currently playing in the game. Uh, and, and of course, and also, well, Yuzmero Petit is a sort of a different situation, but uh, uh, pitchers who lack arm speed, um, but for some reason are able to dominate um, in the minors, or maybe just the lower minors, but maybe the high minors as well. Tommy Malone was a good pitcher; it was a great pitcher in the high minors as well. He hasn't been—he's been fine as a major leaguer, not dominant. But right. Degrom is sort of the the opposite of that. Uh, uh, looking over his numbers briefly, I see that like so like his fourth start right uh, against the Phillies, he had 11 strikeouts. Uh, did Jacob did Jacob Degrom? Uh, a brief inspection of his um, his Fangraphs game logs from from the minor leagues reveals that he had zero 11 strikeout games during the entirety <laughs> uh, of his minor league career, and that yeah. was 59 games started. And in his fourth one as a major leaguer. Uh, he does that, and of course, uh, he's done that a couple more times since. That, that's that's a much harder that's a much harder prospect to to have any idea about because uh, I think that the general ideas with regard to his stuff too was he had uh, decent arm speed. I think he's got what a fastball at ninety three, something like that. Uh, but how do you know? How does that happen? Yeah, I, I think this, guys like this present challenges. I mean, so I'm just in, I'll say I'm looking at DeGrom's, uh, Fangraphs splits page right now, and you see like, you know, he was called up in May, pitched fine, he was not spectacular, but he was fine in May, and then in June, which is a, almost a full month of work, 28 innings, he posted a strikeout rate of 15%, which for a National League pitcher, uh, is 26 years old and doesn't have compelling stuff, 
uh, or at least overwhelming stuff, is not so great. And strikeout rate is one of the things we know stabilizes pretty fast. You don't generally have big fluctuations in strikeout rate, even month to month for starting pitchers. You'll have some variation just because it's four or five starts, but for the most part, guys are going to strike out about what they're going to strike out. Uh, and now in September, Jacob deGrom's strikeout rate is 37%. Like 15% in June, 37% in September. Yeah. Explain this? I can't. I that's don't not know the how. same, that's not really supposed to be the same guy. 37% is, that's elite relief territory. That's like Kenley Jansen. Yeah, right. But you're starting. Yeah, that's not, uh, yeah, that's, that, it's just unusual how that can happen. Yeah. Uh, and I don't, uh, I'm sure. Who's written about? I, I think, uh, Eno Saris has written about Jacob deGrom a little bit, right? Uh, August Fegerstrom wrote about him uh, last week. Okay. Uh, I'm sure Eno's written about him. Yep, I see several posts by Eno uh, in his player page history. We gotta talk about uh, Jacob Degrom. We we should, maybe should have August or Eno on the podcast and talk about Jacob Degrom. I I can get in touch uh, pretty easily with both those guys. I have their email addresses. Uh, they generally respond. Yeah. Well, if you want to have a Jacob Degrom podcast, I would suggest. Maybe August, because he wrote about him last week, so mm-hmm. he's fresh on the brain. Yeah. And I don't know, have we had a Fegerstrom podcast yet? Oh, uh, we did. Well, yeah, uh, half of one, because uh, we were speaking, he spoke with Trevor Bauer. Right, right, but that wasn't him speaking with you. It wasn't, no, yeah. No, yeah. August, and August is another good work. Right, and he was excited that we pronounced his name correctly, so. Yeah, that's right. Good good reason for him to be on the pod. Yeah, all good reasons, all good yeah. reasons. Uh, yeah, we'll have to get, uh, maybe I'll contact Fagerstrom then. Uh, yeah, although I think you might have just mispronounced his name, but. <laughs> yeah, maybe I did. Fagerstrom? Yeah, I think that's, that's probably yeah, that closer, seems, yeah. Seems reasonable. Anyway, alright, you've, uh, fulfilled your obligations, Dave Cameron. Hooray! Uh, anything we, we missed blatantly, you think? Well, plenty of things, but. Yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe, uh, and maybe, uh, let's see, the season's about to end soon. I, I think maybe, uh, we'll start, uh, isn't August the time of year when we start doing the contract, uh, crowdsourcing? October, you mean? What'd I say? August. Yeah, let's not do it then because it's yeah. already gone by. It's a long time. We'd have to either travel yeah. back in time. If only or... we had a writer named October Fagerstrom who oh. we were just writing about. Oh yeah, that's maybe that's what I was doing. That, there. That's probably what happened. October yeah. Fagerstrom. Yeah, let's uh, let's look at. Uh, I, I should start doing that in uh, in October maybe. Yeah, I think that should be the plan. And this year, you're not allowed to forget Johnny Peralta, although he he won't be on the list. But you're not allowed to forget anyone like Johnny Peralta. Hey, you! I ran the list by you too, Cameron. Yeah, it's hard. Uh, it's uh, this year, I will do a better job of uh, double checking double checking your work and not assuming that you are competent. Yeah, yeah, don't do that. Yeah. Stop doing that. All right, uh, a real pleasure, Dave Cameron. Yeah, as always. Yeah, all right. Stick around for one minute, but uh, in the meantime, I'll say th- as I have, uh, thank you to you, Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.